Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyendo los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com. Whether you're buying a new car, a used car, or refinancing your current car, FedChoice Federal Credit Union could help save you money. FedChoice makes buying a car so easy that you can do everything right from your smartphone or on a computer. Become a member today and you can take advantage of their great rates and financing options. Find out more at FedChoice.org. That's FedChoice.org. Membership open to federal employees including contractors and their families. FedChoice Federal Credit Union insured by NCUA. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you. This time on the Hill, we welcome Kate Davidson. She is a uh, correspondent of economic policy with the Wall Street Journal, and she's been uh, closely following uh, the budget deal, which actually was made this week in Washington. Kate, uh, we welcome you, and uh, welcome to On the Hill. Thanks, Tom. All right, so one of the big surprises this week, and, and it was we like surprises because yes it's, good surprises yeah good surprises because <laughs> you know everybody was kind of focused on robert Mueller like non-stop and um out of the blue we get news that democrats and republicans had had reached a budget deal so take us behind the scenes about how this happened because mm-hmm. you know from the outside a lot of folks they look at the capitol and they see Democrats and Republicans screaming at each other all day. Mm-hmm. So while they were screaming at each other, they were also taking time out to ne- negotiate a, a, a budget deal and, and actually do their jobs. Yeah, I think it's a really good reminder that amidst all of the acrimony that sometimes there are important things that get done. And as, certainly this was a, a must-do item um, on the agenda for for the summertime. And then one of the things that helped, I think, was that there was this um, estimate that came out about the debt ceiling, which is something people kind of probably have heard about a few times over the past decade, but maybe not really understood. You know, the government has a borrowing limit. There's only so much money that it can borrow. And when we hit that limit, which we hit in March, there's a little bit of cash that they can use to keep paying the bills. But at some point that runs out. So let's explain that to folks. Um, Part of this deal is that they're going to freeze it. Freeze it for two years? Right, that, right. They're going to suspend it. So, in essence, the government will be able to keep borrowing again, and they won't have to worry about any constraints until July. Um, but uh, I think that Congress originally thought that they might have until the fall to deal with this issue, but then they found out, hold on, we could run out of money in early September, which means, as people who live in Washington know, Congress goes home. They go, they, they go on their August recess. Mm-hmm. So they had to get something done before they left for a recess to Because if this. they came back and this wasn't done, the possibility of it going off the rails was great. Exactly. So that also helped a lot. That helped accelerate the conversations. Who, who Do we know any backstory about like you know what the talks were like? Who went to yeah. who? Uh, how did this... 
We do. You know, kind of negotiation kind of go on under the radar almost. Right, right. Well, you know, policymakers knew this was going to be an issue, not only with the debt ceiling, but also with the um, budget agreement that sets the kind of the overall funding levels for the government. There was this two-year agreement that was going to expire around the same time as the debt ceiling was going to run out in, in September. So they knew they had to deal with this. They started having conversations in May. So it was from the administration, Mick Mulvaney, um, Russ Vaught, who was the Office of Management and Budget Director, Stephen Mnuchin from the Treasury. Um, and then um, also they were, they were meeting with Nancy Pelosi. Of course, they were meeting with Mitch McConnell. So they started having some conversations in May that seemed at one point like they were making progress. And then it kind of fizzled. And then by June, essentially, Democrats um, wanted more money for discretionary spending. Um, and Republicans in the White House were saying, we, we, we want to freeze spending at the current, lo- current level. We don't want any increases. And Democrats sort of said, you know, we, we control the House. And that's a non-starter. So come back to us when you're ready to make a better offer. One of the political issues that had kind of uh, derailed some of the previous uh, budget uh, issues, whether it be the shutdowns or whether it be budgeting itself, was the administration's continued assistance on on money for a southern U.S. border wall. This time, that seems to have been taken off the table a bit, and it has in part to do with the, you know, emergency declaration the president had done, which the Supreme Court uh, has now in the last 48 hours rubber stamped and said it was okay that he could take money from the Pentagon. Uh, um, emergency funds did the removal of that really hotly contested political question free them up to maybe deal on this in a more normal normal way i think it it absolutely did so i think that um they they got to the point where I think the White House realized they were going to have to deal with Democrats. In other words, they were going to have to agree to some kind of higher spending. Um, and Republicans in the Senate, meanwhile, they d- they were against this White House plan to freeze spending because that would mean that spending would be frozen for the military, and they wanted more money for the military. So if they could agree that spending would go up, I think White House negotiators said, okay, well, we need to have something to show the president that we've gotten something out of this deal. So they got this assurance from Democrats that they weren't going to attach any uh, riders or poison pills, as they call them, to spending bills, which they, they still have to pass. This is complicated budgeting process. Mm-hmm. But um, So, right, Democrats agreed, okay, we're not going to try to restrict your ability, the president's ability to, to use this wall, um, use this money to fund the wall later on. So I think that that was an important part, of, certainly, of the negotiations. Uh, so let's talk about the increase in spending, $50 billion. Yes. Sounds like a lot of money. It I, does. Is it? I mean, of course, it's a lot of money to a lot of people. Yeah. But if you compare it to what the government spent this year or will spend this year in fiscal 2019, um, $50 billion is a, about a 3.5% increase. So it's a little bit more than inflation. Mm-hmm. And um, I was talking to another budget expert who's a Republican, and he said, really, if you look at where spending levels were in 2011 when we first uh, Congress first agreed to impose these spending caps, it's actually just about where it was then on uh, discretionary spending, mandatory spending, things like Social Security, Medicare, that's been going up a lot. And so, um, you know, some folks who are still worried about spending increases and deficits and debt, they're saying, look, guys, you really need to start focusing on the mandatory spending piece. But I think that Congress, because they they only really have direct control every year over Mm -hmm. this discretionary side, military, education, uh, scientific research, things like that, that's where they try to trim the fat. So um, anyway, that's a long way of saying a little bit of an increase, but yeah. not major. 
But it comes in the wake of the Trump tax cut. Right. Which, you know, did reduce the amount of money that the U.S. Treasury was taking in. Mm -hmm. Are there any concerns on the Hill that we seem to be moving in two opposite directions here? That uh, on the one hand, we're doing these, you know, massive tax cuts for the upper end of the income scale. But at the same time, we've got $50 billion in discretionary spending increasing as well, too. It seems like when one of those things goes down, the other thing should go down if you're going to try to keep that in balance somehow. Right. I, I think that that's a good point. I guess the simple answer is that nobody's really all that worried about it right, right. now. Uh, it seems that this concern about deficits, which really dominated the conversation just, mm. you know, six, seven years ago, has kind of vanished. Why um, is that? Because that used to be, you know, gosh, Ronald Reagan in 1980. You know, we just lost Ross Perot a couple of weeks ago. That was one of Ross Perot's carrying cards, was warning to people about right. deficit and debt. It's the kind of things that used to be the calling cards of conservatives, mm -hmm. which it's not anymore. Right, right. Well, it depends how cynical you are, right? I think Democrats I'm would say... I'm pretty cynical. <laughs> well, Democrats <laughs> would say that Republicans really only care about deficits when a Democrat is in the White House. And when they have a Republican in the White House, they don't care so much anymore. Um, I think Republicans would argue, well, the tax cuts did uh, well first of all they were saying for a long time they wouldn't add to deficits the tax cuts would pay for themselves so I think that there's definitely still some Republicans who are sticking to that argument even though that's not what the data suggests so far um, but over 10 years they're saying the tax cuts will pay for themselves they won't add to deficits there's there's no independent estimate um, from a from from anyone suggesting that that's going to be the case, um, the estimates are really that it'll add about a trillion dollars. But nevertheless, they argue, well, that's different than spending increases that add to the deficits because tax cuts can is more money in people's pockets. It can help you know boost the mm -hmm. economy. So that's I think sort of where they're coming from. And then Democrats who are now then took back the House, they're saying, well, look at. Why should we be the responsible ones? Why should it be mm -hmm. on us to cut spending to address these deficits that Republicans created with their tax cut? We're not going to do that. We're just going to address spending needs mm -hmm. where we see them. How much of this has to do with uh, getting this deal done in an election year? Because, mm -hmm. you know, here we are. They, they just did have the big midterm in November. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, clearly, you know, we're about to enter, you know, the hyper end of our campaign cycle as the mm -hmm. presidential candidates are, are, are out there right now. Um, did they just want this off the table? Yeah, at I some think point? absolutely. I think that that was a key a key factor. Um, more immediately, as we mentioned, the August recess, uh, when they didn't want to have yeah. to stay in, in Washington for the summer. So I think that was a, a near-term motivation. But right, now that this is done, once they vote on it, they will have to pass the individual spending bills. But then that issue is off the table for the entire election cycle and then into the next president's term. So it's clearing the decks really for them to focus on the now, campaign. Now, we're expecting this is uh, going to go to the House. House and, and, and be passed in the Senate and mm -hmm. be passed. Uh, we we can't quite say, though, that it's going to get unanimous support amongst the Republicans, though, can we? I mean, no, th there does seem to be some pockets of the GOP that, that are not comfortable with this and, and might even vote against it. Yeah, that's definitely true. So the House did the House took their vote. And um, I think it was I think it was 70 percent of Republicans who voted against it um, you know there was a sizable yeah. contingent 
Um, in, in the Senate, there's more Republican support. Um, the Senate tends to be more focused on appropriating. That means, you know, making sure they tend to be a little more pragmatic and mm-hmm. a little more bipartisan with Democrats when it comes to appropriating money for the government. So I think that it seemed like there was more support in the Senate for a two-year deal that increased spending. But right in the House, before we heard about an announcement, we know that there were House Republicans, especially from like the Freedom Caucus, um, the Republican Study Committee, they put out a letter saying, reject any deal, urging the White House to reject any deal that increased spending. Um, And obviously that didn't happen. But then the president was even tweeting to House Republicans, you should support this. Mm -hmm. I support this. It's a good deal, which also is really interesting because that was kind of the big unknown was, will the president accept any deal? Interesting is one word. (laughs) Unusual is another word because it's it's not like this president to kind of um, stay on the sidelines. No, uh, right, right. In in one of these processes, he does like to insert himself. Right. He does like to prod people and and, and push them in certain directions. Mm-hmm. He was radio silent through through all of this, and then only started voicing in mm-hmm. in words of support once it was finally over. Right. What does that tell us about Mick Mulvaney and Steve Mnuchin's ability? to actually wrest control of this process yeah. and have this kind of run in, in a way where we've not seen uh, negotiations from this White House run you know, previously up until this point. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that one thing that is important to note about the sort of political dynamics of it is that Mick Mulvaney was effectively sidelined in this process. Uh, early on, he was a part of it. He was in those conversations. And then we had heard and reported that um, Speaker Pelosi at one point said, I'm not dealing with him anymore. You know, when Mick Mulvaney was a member of the House, he called for government shutdowns. Um, he he was one of the, the rabble rousers who was saying, you know, we should uh, not do a deal on the debt ceiling. We It's not a big deal. He was also, before assuming the title of acting White House Chief of Staff, he was also the, the budget director for this administration. Right, well. exactly. Yeah. And I think that earlier... Um, uh, this year, when we had the 35-day shutdown, he was sort of encouraging the president to, you know, to not to worry about it, shut down the government for the best deal you can get. So Speaker Pelosi essentially said, he has no credibility here, and I'm not going to deal with him anymore. So Steven Mnuchin was uh, essentially deputized to to coordinate these talks, which he was involved because of the debt ceiling. That's an issue for Treasury. But he, the Treasury Secretary doesn't normally handle budget negotiation. Yeah. But he stepped in, and over about, this, over about two weeks, um, two and a half weeks. He and the speaker spoke by phone um, almost every day, sometimes a few times a day, uh, going back and forth on the on the deal. At some point, they announced, well, we have an agreement on the numbers, the overall f- levels for mm-hmm. the next two years, but we're working on a couple other things. As I mentioned, the riders, the poison mm-hmm. pills, that sort of stuff offsets. They did get some money to offset the cost of the deal, but not as much as folks like Mulvaney wanted. So right. I think that also helped a lot. You touched on it a second ago, but I want to bring it up because I think it's a of a lot of interest to people who live in the national capital area throughout the country, if, if they are federal contractors or, or federal workers themselves. Uh, where does this put us as far as the possibility of any more shutdowns? Because yeah. obviously the last one that you know began at the end of 2018 and continued into the, uh, the early weeks of, of, of 2019 um, you know, was devastating for a lot of people financially who depend mm-hmm. You know, on their jobs and their salaries. Um, Does this take that off the table for the next two years? I I don't think we can say it takes it off the table. The conventional view is that this smooths the way, right? Right. Well, this year. (laughs) Let me 
ask about that because yeah. when you say you have a budget deal in place for mm -hmm. two years, do they still need to pass continuing resolutions to authorize that money that's been agreed to? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So <clears throat> what they've said they want to do is pass an omnibus bill. So one yeah. big funding bill. Which they haven't done. <clears throat> they haven't done. In forever. Right. Yeah. So they'll probably do that, or they say they want to do that when they come back in September. So mm -hmm. they'll pass a big, uh, right, as you said, they have this budget deal. Mm -hmm. That just says, here's what, here's how much the government can spend, but yeah. they still have to write legislation you know, divvying it up to each federal agency mm -hmm. for the next year. So the way I've described it to people is you have a bank account. Uh-huh. And stop me if I'm wrong. I no, no. So <laughs> you have a bank account, and that's your budget. Mm -hmm. But your checkbook is the continuing resolution. Yeah, that's right. So the continuing resolution is sort of a um, kind of a stopgap temporary measure. Yeah. Um, what they're going to try to do is pass an actual appropriations yeah. bill, which is how you're supposed to how you're supposed yeah, yeah. to do this. Um, this is the, one of the things John McCain railed about towards the end, you know, end of his life is that they don't do those kinds of things anymore, which used to be yeah. common practice. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was talking to a really smart, longtime um, budget aide on the Hill who's an, an analyst now, and he was saying that he thinks that part of the reason the process is so broken is because we had these series of spending caps that, that the Tea Party pushed for in 2011 that were negotiated then, and um, they've, they've kind of turn the process into this weird thing where every couple of years mm -hmm. we lift spending above the caps, but there's no real holistic view of the budget and the process is, is just sort of focused on let's avoid these automatic cuts called mm -hmm. known as the sequester that yeah. folks probably have heard that word, but what does it really mean? It just means that the funding is going to automatically be cut unless Congress reaches this deal. So it's it's very it's very kind of backwards in the way that we're we're looking at it. And so his view was well, maybe when the uh, caps expire in a couple years, that's another thing that this deal would do is mm -hmm. it would end these these spending caps after this current agreement is done. So then we'll have to go back to theoretically back to this regular budgeting process. So that might improve things then. And Wall Street reacted favorably to this news uh, we saw. Yeah, I mean, they were really not paying that much attention. Yeah. I think they've seen over the past few years, and in 2011, that first debt ceiling showdown really freaked them out. Mm -hmm. But since then, there have been a few um, a few times where we've gotten close, but it's always been resolved. And yeah. so they tend to just ignore Washington. They know there's usually a lot of drama leading up to this, but that ultimately mm -hmm. it gets done. But even this year, there wasn't a whole lot of drama. Well, hopefully, if uh, the, the way this budget deal was reached uh, could be any uh, indication that this could possibly uh, maybe drift over some other areas, mm -hmm. maybe we, we, maybe we could actually start seeing Democrats and Republicans, uh, you know, getting together on other pieces of, of legislation. Or maybe I'm just being too uncynical. <laughs> I probably milk. wouldn't put money on it, but I think that your shutdown question, it we might could, make it. We could cross-pollinate this across <laughs> yeah. all kinds of other issues, the, the budget goodwill that has gone on here. Yeah. All right. Uh, our guest has been Kate Davidson. She is an economic policy correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, and she's been, uh, been kind enough to break down our new budget deal for us here in Washington. Kate, we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, and we thank you as well for joining us here on the Hill podcast. Uh, that'll do it for this time. You've been listening to On the Hill from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We thank you for joining us this time. We'll see you back here next time. Volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost Box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos 10-piece chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre.
Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias.